For June 11th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 206, Bender's Asshole Robot Uncle. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject Lena Dunham's girls to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't <laughs> deserve. We've rechristened the podcast as an all-girls, all-the-time uh, podcast. So, uh, Pete, what do you think? Of, no, uh, just kidding. Uh, you might as well just make it like all-climbing-ropes-all-the-time yeah. podcast, because that's something else I'm terrible at, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, well, we'll just, you can we a- not do the things I'm terrible at today? <laughs> uh, analyzing girls and climbing ropes. Yeah, exactly. Ropes. Like, not, like, not be sexist. Okay. But we're not addressing this. Let's move on. <laughs> Moving right along. No, uh, Prometheus today. Uh, I'm Matthew Rather from Los Angeles here with the panel of uh, Pete Fenzel in Boston. Hello. And Mark That's Lee me. in New York. Uh, in the podcast, everyone can hear you scream. Ah! <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, that's a little hint. We're talking about Prometheus. So, um, uh, question for the panel: panel, if you were to name a prequel to any you know franchise, any entertainment franchise, let's let's not limit ourselves to science fiction. Let's say you know uh, My Little Pony or He Man or GI Joe, any franchise. Um, if you were to name a prequel after a character from Greek mythology. Uh, <laughs> what franchise would you choose, and what character would you choose? And you know, tell us a little bit about tell us a little bit about the uh, the prequel. All right, so I will uh, turn it over to first in the alphabet. Drink because it's Peter Fenzel. All right, excellent. So, in my prequel, which is stunningly called uh, Meliager or Meliager, right? Meliager. How you pronounce it? Uh-huh. Meliager. Uh, so Meliager is the story of an ancient Greek prince, right, and hero, who defeated Atalanta, the huntress, in a foot race with the help of Athena so that uh, he might marry her and whatnot. And part of his story, of course, is that there is a brand, there is a piece of wood, right, which, is, which in order for him to die needs to be burned in the hearth. Right, it needs to be cast into the fire and burned. And as long as this piece of wood is not burned, then he stays alive. He's effectively immortal. Right. Uh, so this is a prequel to Toy Story, where Woody <laughs> is revealed to actually be like. So it basically zooms out from the Toy Story world and shows you the sort of New World Order, One World government that runs the Toy Story world. Right, which is led by this kind of really powerful despot, uh, and and he fashioned or is presented Woody uh, and told by his science advisors that as long as Woody functions and, and continues to bring joy to children, he will never die, right? And it's basically about him trying to find the joy of playing with children and playing with toys, which he loses upon being uh, the, the ruler of this, this uh, CGI 3D world, right? And then there's a whole bunch of horrible mutilative sex acts that happen in this movie, <laughs> much like like the movie Prometheus, which I just saw, but we can get into that in a little bit. Uh, but no, it's a Toy Story preview. Uh, there's a there's an awesome race scene, like a pod race from Star Wars Episode One that takes like 20 minutes to finish, and we, it's revealed that through the entirety of of the Toy Story franchise, Woody is essentially a Horcrux. Excellent. <laughs> there you go. Yes, uh, Mark Lee. Okay, you mentioned My Little Pony earlier. Uh, funny you should. Because that's my uh, the movie that I'm going to have a sequel to with a Greek mythology prequel. It's called Centaur. <laughs> now, let me explain the connection between My Little Pony and Centaur. It's in that uh, My Little Pony is about, you know, horses, uh, also known as ponies, uh, young horses, ponies. And centaurs are, of course, uh, half-man, half-horse mythical beasts. So they're both about horses. Okay, so this might sound familiar because, you know, Prometheus, the Greek uh, legend, the the story from Greek mythology, and Prometheus, the movie, they're both sort of about, you know, uh, bringing life down from the heavens. But that's about where the similarities end. (laughs) So so basically, you know, there's enough there there to sort of call it, uh, you know, a prequel that's based on this Greek thing going on here. But the similarities end. Uh, not so deep uh, into the surface, but we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and I finally, I guess it's me. Um, my uh, 
My prequel is called STNX. Um, <laughs> gosh. You guys are doing real deep cuts of Greek mythology here. I mean, this is, this is like what gets played at 2 a.m. on the classic rock station. Greek <laughs> Look, I'm, this, I just saw this movie, and part of me is just emotionally drained right now. <laughs> so we're definitely going to some of the deep cuts. I think that might be the direction we go in. But anyway, uh, continue. Uh, not to be confused, of course, with the, Ninten- the excellent Nintendo game of the same name, wherein they capitalize on the axe particle of Astian X where no. he gets a giant axe, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, not uh, Astian Axe Wielder. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but Astian X was the uh, child of, uh, of Hector, uh, the Prince of Troy, or a Prince of Troy, and Andromache. Um, and he was killed by th- uh, being thrown from the walls of uh, the city of Troy uh, before the, I mean, after the sack of Troy and before the Greek fleet sailed away because um, the, uh, well, it it depends. Wikipedia is telling me that there are um, different versions of the story, as you'd expect for a Greek myth. But the one I know is that uh, uh, that it was prophesied that Astyanax had to be thrown down for, to ensure favorable winds, to ensure favorable conditions for the voyage home. Uh, f- uh, from Troy back to Greece, so um, there. I guess there are other versions. Well, that's of- why. That's why Clytemnestra was killed, right? Yeah, yeah, um, I am. No, not you got to Cly- see not, that. You, not Clytemnestra. I'm sorry, man. There's there's an alteration. No, no, Iphigenia. <laughs> Iphigenia. Sorry, it, right. that's why Clytemnestra was angry. It was because Iphigenia was killed. Iphigenia and, was isn't- killed for for favorable conditions. And like there are a, again a bunch of versions of that. Like sometime in some of them, uh, in like Iphigenia at Aulis, for example, she is swept away at the moment of her uh, at the moment of her sacrifice and finds herself on the shores of you know. A, of an island or a, on the shores of a, another Greek city, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, um, Asianax gets thrown from the uh, throne and he falls down. So it's a uh, it's a prequel to uh, the Michael Douglas movie Falling Down. <laughs> and um, and it what it is is it's about as Asianax was sort of sacrificed for the greater good or for a kind of conception of the greater good uh, without really much say in the matter, being an infant. Um, it's about the many small humiliations experienced by Michael Douglas's character at the hands of the larger society um, uh, as he is growing up. And you see, it's, it's actually, the, it's called, I guess it's called Astyanax. Uh, the subtitle is Growing Up, you see, because there's growing up and then mm. there's, there's falling down. Yeah. And it's about uh, how he, uh, you know, sort of misses out on opportunities because of larger cultural policies meant to, uh, meant to do good. Um, how, you know, he is, is, uh, uh, he tries for things and, and sort of doesn't get them. And, and again, about the million sort of small humiliations that set the stage for his, um, uh, you know, catastrophic breakdown in the course of the film uh, falling down. Hey, uh, speaking, by the way, because this might be the only chance to bring this up ever. If you're a fan of Andromache and Astyanax, <laughs> uh, I really recommend the movie of the Trojan Women <laughs> with uh, Catherine Hepburn, with, with Vanessa Redgrave, who plays Andromache, right? Uh, you've seen this, right, with Brian Blessed and, like, the, the really, it's really dramatic and not. super intense. Oh, you've never seen the Catherine Hepburn Trojan Women movie? No. Oh, it's spectacular. Oh, you really should. It's just, like, rending of the hair, and it's so dramatic. It's, it's about what happened to the women of Troy after the sack of Troy and like their sort of strength and resilience. And so here's a really interesting connection. I looked up who plays Estianax in this movie, The Baby, a guy named Alberto Sands. And Alberto Sands, uh, predictably enough, didn't really make any other movies except for one other movie, (laughs) which he made 15 years later (laughs) called Solar Babies, Babies Natch, right? Uh, And I just want to read where he plays a skate instructor. And I just want to let you know, this is Little Baby SDNX, because this, this is one of the more interesting movie descriptions I've ever heard. In a future in which most water has disappeared from the earth, we find a group of children, mostly teenagers, living in an orphanage run by the despotic rulers of the new earth. And the group in question plays a hockey-based game on roller skates and is quite good. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's an orb of power involved <laughs> and like nice. they have to, it's 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 very complicated and i really hope that uh, i'm really glad that istianax survived being cast down from the the walls of troy so that he could survive in the post-apocalyptic like bootleg third-rate version of pride of the roller boys <laughs> made in 1986 oh, spectacular so it's the yeah, opposite it's kind of the opposite of water world as an as an apocalyptic future it's not you know the global warming uh world oh yeah where everything is covered with water it's the uh it's the opposite there's like a whole subgenre of post-apocalyptic skate movies mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they're not very good mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's like Corey Corey Feldman and Corey Hamer in Pride of the Roller Boys which is like the canonical one but yeah no I mean in the sense that Waterworld was like we've done post-apocalyptic movies and everything that was affordable and available let's do one in something that's like not been done before because it's prohibitively expensive and a logistical nightmare mm-hmm. right which is just like doing it in a giant tank of water um, and that's that's sort of the whole story but yeah it's, it's the opposite and the pre- precursor it's sort of like it's the it's the like song of roland that makes writing or actually eh, it's more like the orlando furioso that makes writing like actual good night stories very difficult Hmm. because like you are copying something that you're not entirely satisfied with um but yeah which is sort of like prometheus in certain ways (laughs) Uh, in that it's a it's just you know exactly exactly in which like it is a prequel now there will be full-on prometheus spoilers in this movie okay uh in this this podcast rather like we we pretty much can't discuss the movie without fully spoiling it uh i don't really think that will detract too much from the enjoyment of the film because its plot is certainly not its chief virtue uh i mean i want to kick it to mark for a second to get his take but uh but i do want to say just as as a the, the obvious conclusion that anyone who's seen this movie leaves it with is that was a really, really pretty movie with really awesome artistic design and it had some really cool character stuff going on. It had a really cool mood, really cool theme. Even the music was really good and interesting. Uh, but the plot was pretty hashed together and didn't really like satisfy or make a ton of sense um, and has yeah. a lot of huge holes in it. Uh, but that's, you know, I mean, we can talk about that if we want or we can get sort of scoot, scooch by it and like sort of take it as a given, right, and talk about the things about the movie that are actually interesting. But I just wanted to lay that out there for people who haven't seen the movie and at this point maybe aren't planning on seeing it. Uh, we're talking about a movie that like is a huge, huge labor of like making it beautiful, making it interesting, making it sort of like intellectually possessed of like thematic cinematic qualities, uh, but in which like there's like several just hugely rampant scientific errors in like the first 15 seconds that make the entire rest of the movie very silly. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'll, I'll keep this to Mark because I want to get your take on it. Um, yeah, I'll put it a different way. And actually I'll borrow a yeah. phrase that I think you've used in the past, Pete. It's, this is a movie that's boxing way above its class, uh, yeah, way yeah, above its yeah. weight. It is yep. extremely ambitious. Uh, when at its core, it is very similar to Alien, which is to say it's a sci-fi horror movie. Right, and right, right, I thought exactly. that it accomplished that mission extremely well, and I'll get to how it does it in a second. I thought that all the other portentous, uh, weighty trappings that it tries to uh, add on to itself, you know, this, I, this is what I was alluding to earlier, this idea of the Greek mythology of Prometheus and the origin of man, and why are we here, and what about religion when it turns out that aliens created this? Like, all these things, it's all in there, and all the stuff of this plot happens, and it's not even really clear, like, you know, what ostensibly we are led to believe the movie is actually the case. Uh, it, it is quite ambiguous uh, and, and right. not, doesn't really add anything to the enjoyment of the movie or like reveal anything about the human spirit. Yeah. What, it now, does do, what it does do, <laughs> and people agree with me, uh, I think, on this, is that it uses psychosexual terror in an extremely <laughs> effective way to, to disturb the crap out of you. <laughs> yes, and that's, what, that's what Alien did, right? It's a lot of, uh, like, you know, uh, penetration and, uh, uh, you know, birth horror types of things going on. And this uh, movie, what do we have? We have tentacle uh, uh, rape. We have uh, an alien abortion. We have a vagina dentata eating an alien. I mean, I, I, there's probably other things as well, but this is what we're dealing with here, people. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. To work out of our I thought we weren't going to talk about Lena Dunham's girls on this podcast. Oh, oh, oh. 
So, so here's, so this is, this is, I mean, lest you, I mean, we are the overthinkers. This is kind of our job. So we will go into some of the more substantial pieces of the movie, but I will sort of state a personal preference, which is I prefer movies where the movie itself kind of progresses in an elegant fashion and the stuff that is overthought kind of like supports and traps it and kind of like surrounds it. And, 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 uh, it's a movies where the, the ideology of it is like very possessed and like very forward in a very serious way. And the, progression of the movie is not elegant right give, like give, give an example of that people well like i mean so one of the movies that i that i really uh can't help but compare this movie to because of the art design right is the chronicles of riddick <laughs> <laughs> and because first of all like several i think they've shot on some of the same sets <laughs> Except, like, in this movie, the set is, like, the sort of nihilistic tomb chamber of the human progenitors, right, which, like, you need to consider in this sort of uh, very meditative sense in which these horrible things happen. And in, in, in there, it's, like, the sort of main, like, governance and battle chamber of the Lord High Marshal of the Necromongers, right, and their quest for the Underverse. And, like, while this seems similar, the two movies are very similar in that, like, they're space movies, they're sci-fi movies, they're genre pieces, they're very possessed of their genre, they're trying to accomplish what their genre wants to accomplish. This is a horror movie. This is an action movie. And they both have this, like, immensely huge stakes that are built around them. But in the Chronicles of Riddick, like, it remains... Maybe it's just that I like really fun goofy action movies, and the ideology doesn't really try to assert itself over the action that's happening. I mean, it does try to be serious, but the the winkingness of the action movie continues. You know what? I'm going to revise it. I just don't like visceral psychosexual horror films. <laughs> like, that's really what it boils down to, because I actually like movies that have a ton of ideology, I guess. So I'm going to backpedal and backpedal and backpedal and just say that, like, this movie is pretty rough. Like, okay, so my, one of my favorite moments of the movie was a, a, a conversation that happened out loud in the theater between one of the people in the audience and the dialogue that was happening in the film. Uh, right? So, like, there's a scene there's a character in the movie who I'm going to refer to as Stringer Bell, and this is the captain of the ship, <laughs> who is like sort of a rough and tumble blue collar guy with a, a thick like Texas kind of accent. I'm sure it's like an Oklahoma drawl or something. I don't know. I can't locate it specifically as a dialect. It's probably it's pretty bad because Idris Elba is British and he's doing like a thick southwestern American accent or southern you know South Central. I don't even know what to call it. Um, and so the protagonist woman, who what's the her South, last name? South Harp? Central is something entirely different from. That's you entirely know. different. What is the name of the protagonist woman in this movie? Is it Harp? Hart? Uh, uh, something. Uh, Yumi Rapassi's character's name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the actress by name because uh, she's Shaw. Kind of, Elizabeth Shaw. Shaw. I knew it was like a four-letter word that had an H in it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Shaw. So Shaw goes up to Stringer Bell and is like, "Look." string a bell like and then they're talking and it's like we figured out that this whole mission is really terrible and like in <laughs> fact this this is going to be like the result of it is going to be the annihilation of life on earth using an alien weapon of mass destruction which is really the one of the framing devices of every alien movie right is that like the corporation is trying to get the xenomorphs so that they can use it as a weapon of mass destruction that's like the main framing device of all the alien movies and then each alien movie does something totally different with it and so, although it's not really the the corporation's motive in this one, we can get to that later. No, 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 exactly. Um, but basically, like Stringer Bell is is talking to Shaw, and Shaw goes, "You know, there's one of them alive down there. Don't you want to know what he has to say?" And the person in the audience goes, "Not really." <laughs> <laughs> and then Stringer Bell looks at her and goes, "I don't care." <laughs> Just like out of here, something to that effect. And the person in the audience goes. That's right. <laughs> That's right, Stringer. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, like, there's a, there's at the very, very end of the movie, and again, we're totally spoiling it here, but at the very end of the movie, when they do the scene from Alien, right, where the, you think Ripley's okay, and then the alien shows up. You're like, she's the only one left alive. You think that she's going to die, or she thinks she's okay. Then the alien shows up, and she has to fight the alien, and it totally seems like she's going to die. Like, that happens in this movie, too. Same scene, pretty much. Except, like, there's a totally other sex thing that happens that I'm not going to go into. Yeah, really. another alien then kills the other the- Exactly. So, so what happens at that point is David, the android, played by my, uh, played wonderfully by Michael Fassbender as this tremendous asshole robot, just this awful, awful asshole of a robot, like, like, like on the level of Jude Law in AI. Oh, like three times the level of Jude Law. In AI. <laughs> okay, excellent. It, it's like if Bender like had a family reunion and there was like <laughs> asshole uncle that Bender was afraid to talk to because he's like actually done time. <laughs> 
Like, he was, like, actually really nasty. And, like, he had a respectable job, but it was kind of bad. So the asshole robot contacts Shaw and is like, hey, like, I have an idea for us to get off this planet. Like, cooperate with me, right? And at this point, he's been reduced just to his head, right, by, like, his plans going horribly awry. Which is something that happens in in most, if not all, the alien movies. Exactly. Like, the android gets dismembered, and then you see that it doesn't actually look like a human, right? And that's, like, the the reveal, right? And what I really wanted, because one of the most pretentious things in the movie, and I hate to say pretentious, that's not true, because it is kind of really nice, uh, is that Michael Fass, during everyone's two years uh, business in in cryosleep, Michael Fassbender watches Lawrence of Arabia, and like, (laughs) learns Lawrence of Arabia line by line, and like, bleaches his hair to be like uh, like Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia, right? And he's going to this desolate wasteland, he has, he talks about how like, in the desert, there's nothing, and nobody wants nothing, and he's like, quoting Lawrence of Arabia through the movie, um, here and there, and, um, so, so like, I really wanted there to be a shot where, like, she goes to the, to the alien spaceship to go pick up, to go to meet with Michael Fassbender, and the next shot is just, like, the alien desert, and, like, the tiny spot appears in the middle, and the music from Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> and, you, and as it zooms in, you see her, like, slowly, and you realize she's carrying his head, right? <laughs> and what I really wanted to have happen was for her, to him to be like, yes, we have this great plan, all these wonderful things will happen, we'll change the world. I really wanted her to just throw his head on the ground and just start hitting it with that axe. Just like, you terrible, horrible thing. I hate you so much. And just like, and like the axe, of course, bounces off because he's a robot and just like hitting him and hitting him. He'd be like, ow, ow, ow. And I would have been entirely fine with it just going to credits. Like, it's just- you should talk about one important part of the plot here is why it would be appropriate for Shaw to destroy, to be really mad at the robot. It's because the robot did something horrible. He intentionally infected her boyfriend with the alien thing just to figure out what it would do. And then the boyfriend impregnates Shaw with an alien, which causes her to have to get the alien abortion. Oh, it's horrible. She has every reason to burst this robot into pieces. Well, the robot tries to do the plot from Alien 3, right, which is – and it's funny how every – like so many of the scenes are pulled from the Alien movies. The, ro- the, like, the robot wants to take uh, – wants to put her in cryostasis with her having the alien in gestation so that they can take her back to Earth and like study the alien, extract the alien, and weaponize the alien to use against the corporation's enemies conceivably. Like that's what the scene makes it seem like. But he's explaining it to her while she's just sitting there, right? He's like, oh, look, you're pregnant. I'm not going to show you what it is, but it's not human. You know, like, it's just like, this is awful. Get this thing out of me. This is awful. And he's like, we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to freeze you. We're going to take you to Earth. And then something will happen there that probably won't be very good. You're not going to like it very much. And he's just such a huge dick about it. You know, like, it's not just that he has an evil plan, but he's just, just like, and then I think the part of it is that, and this is really the motivating, this is where we get to what the movie's actually about, other than psychosexual horror, is that he really resents the fact that he was created by humanity and and he has sort of the same kind of like complex relationship with his creators that humanity has with its creators and and he kind of wants to jump over humanity and talk to humanity's creators about it. There's a there's a this is a Ridley Scott film. There's a little bit of Rutger Hauer's character from Blade Runner in this guy, a very little, right? Where he like he's just really snide and disdainful towards the people that made him in a lot of ways and doesn't really and like is, is resentful. He also it has emotional shortcomings. Right, because they say he doesn't have a soul, but he does clearly have an emotional life. He's not like Data from Star Trek: The Next Generation, which we can get to in a second, because it's also relevant for this. Um, but yeah, but I mean, he hates people. Like he just, or at least he's incapable of compassion for them in a way that they would be meaningful. He either is on the autism spectrum or is a huge dick. And is it the case in real life? Like that difference is important, and you kind of have to figure out which one you're dealing with. You don't want to be horribly mean and take an axe to the person who's on the spectrum. Great. Now I'm going to get a bunch of comments in the thread about me being mean to people with autism. I, I, my sister. Just, all right, all right, all right, Pete. Let's let's take things a little bit different. No, yeah. Let's not. <laughs> Let's not get defensive. <laughs> I know. All, okay, the, so, all, the, all, the, all the people who don't like it can unsubscribe quietly and not leave comments about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what you're getting at is, is, is really interesting in that there, you know, it really, okay. So earlier I said that there's, it's really striving for these big ideas and it falls short and falls short, slightly short. And part of the problem I think is that there's so many of these big ideas crammed in there that it, it can't let you really just like uh, meditate on any one of them long enough, right? 
Would right, you say right. that's, that's a fair thing, right? This whole everything you talked about, about how uh, David's relationship to his human creators is like the human's relationship to their alien creators. I think that's great stuff. And if they had spent more time on that, uh, it would have been a more satisfying movie. Um, yeah. But they don't spend a lot of time on that because we have a lot of the psychosexual terror that you have to do in this sort of movie, right? Okay, so I know we've been dancing around this a, uh, a lot, and we keep mentioning it and we come back to it. So let's actually just unpack this here, and let's talk about, like, why have psychosexual terror in a movie? Why have it in a space movie in particular? Why do it in Alien? And why do it again in Prometheus? Okay. Me, you want me to start? Because uh, <laughs> I get <yeah>. started. <laughs> so the movie's main overarching theme is, uh, surrounds ideas of origination and death, right? And it's like it's. I think it's Ridley Scott is kind of meditating on death. There are characters in the show that are meditating on death, and meditating on death gets them to meditate on origin, right? And so I think the movie suffers from a little bit of what I call head vampire theory, <laughs> which is this idea that if you <laughs> can find, happy, please. Yeah, which is like, if you can find the thing that caused the horrible situation that you're in and somehow dispatch it or deal with it, it will solve all your other problems, <laughs> right? It's like, the vampire has converted all your friends to vampires. They've killed half the people in the town or enslaved them. Or, like, alternatively, Medusa has come to town and has turned half of, your, of the town to stone. If you kill Medusa... In the head, in like the sort of contemporary Hollywoodized version of the story, all your friends who are turned to stone come back to life, right? right. All of the people who you, you know, who were killed, who were turned into vampires by the head vampire, oh, Xander gets saved or whatever, you know, because the head, the master has been dispatched. I'm like mixing Buffy episodes hugely here and conflating a whole bunch of stuff there. I'm not trying to be, but the, you know, the general idea, right? Is that like if we deal with the big bad in some way, it will like resolve these horrible systematic pro- systemic problems that mm-hmm. affect everybody else. And, I mean, I think the movie posits that this will happen, and then, of course, is like, it won't happen, right? Like, that's not what, it ha- what happens. But um, along the way is the problem of childbirth, right? Which is that, like, so if... if so in the, be- the first shot of the movie is the progenitor of the human race, right, basically committing suicide, right? Like, he's been on Earth, and he takes some sort of alien substance into his body. Uh, he looks like a super buff, idealized, like, literally carved out of marble kind of person uh, with huge biceps and muscles and whatnot. And he drinks something, and he, like, decays into genetic material that then is washed into a river. And it's implied that he has some role in the formation of humanity in, like, this particular part of Scotland or in the world in general. Um, and so there's a, it's a birth that involves like a sort of violent tearing of you, of the corporeal body and it's portrayed very graphically as are all of the other things in the movie. And so birth itself, childbirth is like a horrible tearing of the corporeal body in a lot of ways in the sense that like we have these ideas of how our bodies are supposed to work that we have through our childhood and into our teenage years and at some point in particular women need to address the horrible reality of like my body is also capable of doing this birth thing which is really scary and like violent and painful and like deforms me in some way and is almost kind of like a death in certain ways like a dissolution of the form of my body that i understand it's transformation into this thing that scares me right and that is is like a and then that is of akin to death in the same way that head vampire theory right has like originations of birth and death this symmetry right we look to narrativize it and make sense of it so like the death of a person and the and the way that a body is kind of rent as it dies and decays is compared to the way that a, a body is torn in childbirth, and I think that this is what Alien is is about to a large degree. It's about um, it's about rape, and it's about like the unwilling how like you didn't sign up to be a vessel for childbirth when you were born, right? Like you didn't ask for this, right? This is kind of like this xenomorph, this strange alien thing, this alien that comes into your life at a certain point and is different from you and separate from you and is going to do this horrible thing to you that you don't want to have happen. Um, but which is a biological necessity once it goes into motion. You can't really stop it without performing further acts of violence like they do in this movie. Um, and, and so, like, you know, it's messy. And I think, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole abortion issue stuff too much because it's in the movie, right? But I think the main, the main thing about it is that it, too, is messy. It, too, is awful. All of it is awful. We would like to think that medical procedures are nice and neat and clean, but they are not. Like, the whole sphere around this facet of life is, like, portrayed in the alien movies which are of course made by a man as like 
very terrible and painful and awful, right? I mean, that that's basically, like, what it all has to do with each other. And in Aliens, she gets to be the mother for the little girl, and you see her sort of knowledge of the horrors of childbirth as being something that lends her strength and resilience. That's like the James Cameron view of the world, right, where, like, you get to be a hero and you get to save the day, uh, and that our knowledge of the sins of the past allows us to sort of not transcend but kind of rise above in other ways, right? And then the Alien 3, the David Fincher way of looking at it, is this sort of, like, we've been discarded. We've been left behind, right? We're not part, like, childbirth and, and the, the knowledge of childbirth and the trauma that we've gone through is part of the trauma that we experience through social alienation and economic, socioeconomic alienation, which is a big thing in his other movies, right? Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's how I would put, posit it. That's how I would tie it all together around this movie and that this movie is about humanity trying to find what caused it because that question is scary and related to death. And in turn, we then look at birth, which also caused us and is also related to death and is also scary. And we tell it through the genre of psychosexual horror because, like, this is a genre that plays upon these essential natural fears, these, like, you know, from a Freudian sense, right, these, like, fears that are bred deeply in us. Us through nature of us right. passing from what right. or Jungian fears more than Freudian fears. So uh, I'll just cite the, the Wikipedia article for, for Alien that I was reading earlier. I mean, it yeah. was super intentional, right? It's like we're going to use these uh, these images of rape and birth to scare the crap out of people. Like, yeah, you know yeah. it's disturbing, and this is what we're going to do. Um, and it's it just fascinates me though that like this is where uh, filmmakers want to go, where they. You know, this is the part of their imagination that they want to unleash on the audience, and that this is where we, as audiences, on some level, want to go as well. I mean, I guess it depends how you define where we want to go versus where we are being taken by a filmmaker against our will. I mean, look, uh, people like horror movies. That's not a. That's not a like. Just because I don't like horror movies, or maybe you don't like horror movies, doesn't mean people don't like horror movies. They're very popular, especially like horror movies that involve sex in some way, because like horror and sex are like big ideas for people, and people respond to them on a visceral level. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it, it just because I mean, this movie did definitely provoke feeling, right? Like oh, you yeah, and right. I both had strong reactions of feeling, and I think that like, you know, my distaste for this movie is similar to my distaste for whiskey. You know, like, I understand why people <laughs> like it. You know, like, I understand why people like it. I try it every once in a while, and it's kind of enjoyable, but ultimately it kind of makes me sick. You know, like, that's, that's that, Well, much- yeah, yeah, but whiskey does it in a different way rather than showing you a graphic alien abortion. There, there's, oh. a limit, there's a limit to the metaphor. It doesn't extend and it's. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the one on the podcast who hasn't seen the movie, which is a requirement for, for all of our podcasts, but um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, like, it's a self-administered alien abortion, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Without without general anesthesia. Right. Okay. Like vocal anesthesia. Right. <laughs> so can we talk about that? I mean, like, is <laughs> operating on operating on oneself without anesthesia? There's a great operating on oneself without anesthesia scene in uh, Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. You know, which is not yeah, a movie about about the horror of childbirth. In fact, it's it's. Sort of, if anything, it's the opposite. It's about kind of a horror of women and and these sort of homosocial relationships and kind of the all male environment. Yeah, uh, Black Hawk. Is that too. The Black Hawk Down surgery scene is similar to that one as well with the femoral artery. Oh goodness. Yes. Right. Okay. All right. So let's talk about alien abortion. There's also. I mean, there's one that's where uh, not. Rob Stark meets his uh, meets his wife to be in the TV version of uh, of Game of Thrones. Right. Well, let's not get too much into that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, let's name a whole bunch of self-administered medical procedures. It's not, it's not self-administered. It's just without anesthesia. I, I, I guess I'm going pretty far afield here. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm sure there'll be one in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter where he has to like stop, let someone's leg off, uh, use tourniquet and morphine, right? Like, <laughs> but anyway. By, by the way, did you get the? Uh, we'll just take this digression one level further and then come back to alien abortion because that's what we all want to talk about. Did you get the trailer for the 3D uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer before this movie? Yeah, it wasn't 3D, but I got that trailer. It looked great. Yeah, I was <laughs> the portentous reading of the um, of the Gettysburg Address. Totally. Abraham Lincoln, you know, chops aliens to bits with his axe. Uh, not aliens, gosh, that, vampires. <laughs> that raises a very interesting now, linguistic. Now we are and, engaged in a great civil war, testing yeah. whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. I mean, do you want to jump into the linguistic phenomena and the analysis around that, which I was planning on talking about in the context of Prometheus anyway, or do you want to talk about an alien abortion? Let's talk about alien abortion. Let's just get this. Let's just get this off because of, of, of let's, the. Let's of, just, of the let's just get this out. 
Yes, yeah. let's just get it out because people are what probably wondering about it. I don't like it, Mark, but I don't like it, Mark. But I support your legal right to do this. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, is there anything to the idea that, like, you know, by portraying and this alien abortion in uh, in this movie, that this movie is somehow part of the discourse we have in our politics about abortion and determination of pregnancies? I don't think it is, but I just want to put that out there so that we can at least, you know, tease the theory out a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that there, to- I think there totally is. I think that, I mean, the biggest moment in it, right, is when she goes up to the, so she has the surgery performed on her by this machine that is basically like a Xerox machine, but for surgery. <laughs> you like, punch in the code, it doesn't work, you try to get it to do what you want, then you get on top of the thing and hope for the best, right? So, uh, <laughs> so, so she asks for a cesarean, and then for some reason that makes, that, oh, I remember, yeah, I, it makes sense now, it didn't make sense at the moment, but so, so the machine machine is calibrated basically to only take male subjects, right? And so what you can infer from that is it's calibrated to take care of Guy Pierce's age makeup, ancient, like, <laughs> corporate CEO right. guy. Like, that's why they have a surgery machine is because they're smuggling a secret 90-year-old on the spaceship. Um, but basically, like, the machine is like, this is calibrated for a man. It can't perform the procedure that you're asking for. And so she instead has to change, change it and manually program it to identify a foreign body inside of her abdomen and remove it. Right. So she has to basically like because because the machine is programmed for a man, it doesn't understand her choice to have an abortion. And instead, she has to like identify the the gestating alien in her abdomen as like a foreign object and 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 which of course like is around semantic framings around ideas of the fetus and ideas of when life begins. I don't think that it's like a conclusive commentary on it. I think I think the the place where it resides is isn't this horrible? Doesn't it suck? You know, like, like <laughs> I don't think it's making a strong point in favor of abortion. I don't no, think it's no, like, no, 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 no. I don't think it was either. It's available so that if the alien impregnates you, you can have an abortion. I mean, there is this argument saying there are horrible traumas that happen to people that sometimes they have to do this, you know, like, but I don't think that it's actually involved in the politics to that degree. I think it's just so, showing like the horror of it. I think it's playing off it for horror. But I do think that there is politics because she is the only Christian in the movie, right? And Mac yeah, Fast- yeah, yeah, yeah funner for for it inappropriate times like um like when she's just had the alien aboard like when she's about to get put to sleep for the alien gestation it's just awful um but yeah but she's she's a christian and she still wants to have the alien abortion and you never really question why she would want to do it right like um because it's gonna kill her right by ripping itself out of her abdomen we've seen it happen before in other movies Hmm. um it's basically like episode one right but instead of like jar jar this is what they give us. Uh, well, actually, this is instead of Jar Jar. This is instead of like the scene where Obi Wan takes his hood off in like the exact same way that Obi Wan takes his hood off in uh, in uh, the uh, Star Wars when we first see him. It's like this is like the fan service is the alien abortion scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's that's where I feel like it relates. I mean, what do you think? Does that does that feel like to you where it relates to the discourse around the politics of this? Like, is an abortion a human being? Is it a is it a foreign object? Uh, how is this altered by the fact that men have have formed most of the discourse around medicine, you know, and, and thus, like, it's hard for women to articulate in the language of medicine exactly what's going on, and so, this creates prejudices in the political discourse or enables prejudices in the political discourse, which sort of, like, few are fueled by the shortcomings of the medical discourse to sort of accurately and, or at least sympathetically describe what's going on. Yeah, I guess, so when, when you laid all that out in that way, Pete, I will say that, yes, by and large, I agree um, with uh, what you're saying, that the abortion is played up for, you know, for horror effect. Right, yeah. and it really works in that yeah. regard. Um, I, I think there is a little bit of commentary going on there uh, with the fact that the pro- the machine is programmed only for a male uh, a male anatomy, um, and that you know, that might be a little bit of commentary there about how, uh, or it's more, more broadly, but I guess about what gender roles and uh, the, the the role of women in this future society. Yeah, sure. I mean, certainly they get messed with in every freaking movie, like something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> every movie it's like oh ripley it's a horrible alien i mean it happens to everybody else too just to i mean it happens to everybody else too but it, the one that happens to worst right or the one who has to endure the most of it because they die last is ripley every time right mm-hmm. like or winona Ryder or whatever um 
you know, so so yeah, so they usually are centered around a woman. I do think it's a sympathetic. I think Ridley Scott is trying his best to like get a woman's perspective in there. I don't think he's being chauvinistic in doing it. But yeah, hey, okay. can we move on to a different uh, psychosexual uh, terror that's being presented in the movie that's not about abortion? You're killing me, Mark. <laughs> sure, 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 <laughs> sure. Okay, so we have one Greek uh, myth here about Prometheus. Um, can we talk also about Oedipus? Sure, always. Yeah. About Oedipus. Okay. The, the so, object of desire, sure. Right, so there's a few like weird Oedipal things going on here, right? I guess when I say Oedipal, I should say that I'm using a very broad definition of it, right? Which sure. is like, like a psychological definition, not like a literary, like comprehensive definition. Or, sure, right. Which is like, you know, a, uh, what's the best way to describe this without getting myself in trouble? Like a bizarre sexualized relationship with parents as well as the, uh, what, the, the conflict with children and parents and desire to kill the parents as well in some ways, right? Right, right. I think- which is brought out straight up into the into the forefront when uh, when David the robot basically says uh, that he wants to kill it. but the either he or other people just, that's what we all want to do we want to kill our parents yeah exactly which is I mean is you know not true <laughs> first of all <laughs> yes, I mean, that's, not that. that's not important um, I mean yeah so I, I mean he certainly is very Oedipal right and like I mean I think one interpretation of one sort of critical or like psychological interpretation that's very important of the Oedipal idea right is that like um, you're not just mad at your parents for giving birth to you, right? Like you're also kind of like pursuing this kind of like fully realized object of desire that you can never really have, right? And that like it sort of drives you to destruction and self-destruction um, and, and progenation is part of that. I'm not the best at remembering this at the moment because you keep bringing up all the awful alien stuff. But um, I mean there's a lot about like, uh, you know, trying to kind of like approach – the thing that you know that made you the thing that you want the thing that you feel like is going to fully fulfill your you and then just ultimately being unsatisfied by it or having to destroy it in some way like not just as a parent but you know uh, any any sort of thing like like if you went to the ballpark right and you really wanted to meet david ortiz and you met him and he was a huge jerk right like and and not that he would be he probably wouldn't be seems very happy friendly dude but like what if he was a huge what if david ortiz is a huge jerk right what if you have this suspicion that david ortiz is going to be a huge jerk what if it's impossible for david ortiz to be a sufficiently unjerkish person to fulfill the expectation and the psychological need that you have for david ortiz to like love you and affirm you right this is like stan from eminem right like eminem like stan is an oedipal song where Eminem's fan wants to, like, meet Eminem so much, and he has this object of desire in Eminem that's, like, unattainable, that he ends up, like, kind of assuming the personage of Eminem and then killing himself as sort of a way of killing Eminem and, like, killing the people around him. Like, there's Oedipal undercurrents in that whole story uh, in the broader sense. And, yes, there's Oedipal undercurrents in this one, too. It's related to horror. It's related to Blade Runner, creation. It's all similar, and it's all part of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, something else that, that came to mind while we're, t- while we're talking about incense. All these wonderful topics on this podcast. We can, I have a lot of other topics we can address if you Okay, want. all right. So I'm going to bring this up, and then, I, and then please, please move us on, Pete. Uh, okay, so um, uh, when we talk about Oedipus, there's this whole like subtext, of, not subtext, but just you know text of incest, right? Um, uh, sexual relationship with parents. Um, and, and then the weird like comes up. By the way, like, this is an awesome. This is an awesome movie, guys. You should all see this movie. Yeah, I know, right? Okay, there's this weird like uh, insinuation of sexual relationships among siblings. When I say siblings, of course, I mean uh, the Charlize Theron character and David. Yeah. But, so it's implied there's they have a sibling like relationship in that uh, you know uh, Charlize Theron's uh, father, biological father, is uh, Waylon, Mr. Waylon, the old dude, uh, Guy Pearce in old makeup. And, uh, and and David's uh, sort of metaphorical father is also Waylon, right, who created, uh, who created the android David, right? Yeah. And then there is a very weird scene in which um, uh, Charlize Theron uh, gets really up into David's face and, like, uh, just like there's just, like, seemingly sexual tension in yeah. there. Right. Well, it's the scene that reveals that she's a robot because she's capable of of manhandling David, as it were, and we know he's super strong. So, in order for her to do that, she also has to be a robot. Oh, wait, 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 wait! Don't you remember? Don't you remember oh, the scene? I where remember the scene, but it, I just it, just it didn't occur to me that that was revealed that she was a robot too. 
Yeah, don't you remember when Stringer Bell is trying to have sex with her? And he's like, Say, if you want to get laid, you just come in here and say, I want to get laid. Right? And that's, he didn't use that voice, but that's sort of the voice that it was a little more Southern. And then, and then she's like, Why, if I wanted to get laid, why would it come out all this way? And then he plays his trump card, which is like, are you a robot? And then she's like, my quarters, like two minutes. <laughs> right? Like, so basically he like, he knows that she's a robot and he uses that as leverage to get in her pants because she won't play his little game with him. And it's implied that they have sex, right? Like, because he, yeah. he has the blackmail over her. No, no. The only reason that she could, because he has data level strength. He, he opens the head. They don't get a ton of opportunities to show that in the movie, but the androids and alien are really, really strong. So like the only way that Charlize Theron can like grab this android and throw the android up against the wall is if she, also is an android and there's that scene with her and guy pierce where it's also implied that she's an android right and she's like she's his daughter he's her father or whatever you know there's that weird scene where he she sort of rubs her her lips on his hand and like kisses it in this really intense way um which also recalled some more blade runner stuff for me i think um but but yeah like uh yeah yeah she's supposed to be a robot in the movie she's supposed to be okay yeah i just spent the last few minutes here uh uh sort of uh, running back in her mind and, and feeling kind of dumb, not having noticed that. No, I mean, it also means it's open that if they make Prometheus 2, Prometheus, prometheus or <laughs> that she can, like, get off right, because uh, yeah, she prometheus, got hit Oh, yeah, yeah, she'll prometheus, be back. Prometheus 2, yeah. we're coming for your liver. <laughs> exactly. Prometheus 2, prom night zombies. <laughs> like, like Prometheus 2, prom night jur- journey of EO. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good lord, good lord. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, so that all happens, and that's definitely, that's definitely in the movie. Um, so, all right. So let, let me let me move it. Like, the Oedipus is a good transition, right? Um, because one of the because there's I'm gonna I'm gonna make a salient cleavage here, which is a term that Ryan likes to use a lot, probably in the TFT podcast. I know he uses it a lot in, in academic casual conversation. <laughs> uh, I'll mark the salient cleavage here um, it, that exists in literary theoretical circles and psychological circles, particularly philosophy of language and and all matters related to the, to that sort of ideas of semiotics and meaning between uh, ideas that are centered around uh, what I'll use, Der- I'll use Derrida's term, although I'm using it imp- imprecisely, uh, the transcendental signifier, and, and Oedipal myths would, would participate in this, right? Um, and, and then uh, ter- and, and another side, um, in opposition to that, I'll put... Um, Oh, sorry. Derrida identifies the transcendental signifier sort of negatively, right? He says this is a thing that people are looking for. It, in fact, doesn't exist. Uh, and you could also associate that with, like, Chomsky's generative grammar and certain other ideas where it's, like, common language, common ideas, common things of meaning. The fact that people in different places tend to come up with similar ideas is a sign that there's something that unites all of the ways that we're thinking about things. There's some sort of big thing that proceeds down and offers meaning to all the subsequent things, right? And then the idea around all these different philosophies is that this thing sort of changes and different people have different ideas of what it is. And what Derrida says is it's all the same thing. Well, it's not all the same thing, but it's like, it's, it's all fulfilling the same function. What specifically it is doesn't matter. The point is that it is nonsense, right? right? And and the, the point is... Right. The idea is that there's, there's a, a lot of these sort of discourse courses participate in a dream. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. It's just that, no, no, this you know, is, this is perhaps the one thing I might be useful for on this, on this <laughs> podcast. So let me, uh, let me you know, try gamely uh, yeah. to contribute something. That yeah, yeah, a lot of these discourses, cultural discourses, per, uh, uh, participate in, in a sort of hope, a sort of wish for the transcendental signified, the the uh, escape from the chain of signification, um, and in uh, in the kind of the greatest hits of Derrida, which is an essay called Structure, Sign, and Plan, the Discourse of the Human Sciences, uh, calls the origin and the end of the game. That is to say, that there is a big bat. You know what I mean? That it's it's like the it, it, what Derrida is articulating is what you call, I like, guess, the lead vampire theory, the head vampire theory, right? That yeah, is to yeah. say, you can get to a point in interpretation or in meaning where at that point you can stop. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that and that is the kind of the stable ground on which yeah. uh, you can sort of build your structures, your structures of meaning. And what Derrida says is, uh, uh-uh, uh, that you know that is not true. That that thing itself does not ex- escape structurality, by which uh, by which he means sort of an arbitrary nature. Yeah. You know uh, that that thing is just as constructed as all the constructions that supposedly rest upon that thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll 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 illustrate this concept using two things I saw at the movie theater tonight. <laughs> One of them is a scene from Prometheus where when they she's like, oh, we found them, right? And and it's like, uh, and somebody tells her like, 
Uh, oh, somebody tells like, oh, it's, it, David says to her, I think, oh, shouldn't you give up your belief in God now? You found out we were made by aliens. And then she says, yes, but who made them? Right. And so this sort of shows how the transcendental signifier is kind of like moving goalposts, where each time that we find so- – and by signify, we mean something that represents something else or something that gives birth to something else in a sort of symbolic way. And not symbolic. Well, you, you know what I mean? Like a letter signifies as a sound but also signifies a meaning. Uh, any sort of like ideogram or word or any – or sentence or anything that – yeah, well, those are all to, signifiers. You have to think of it conceptually as an arrow, right? Anything that has an yeah. arrow pointing somewhere else is a, is a signifier or at least is is kind of doing some signification. Yeah. So in Prometheus, we have a couple of instances of this where, like, there's the glyph of the constellation or whatever of the, of the galactic cluster, which leads them to the planet. And they find this glyph in all these different civilizations, and they determine that it has to be stars, and it has to be these specific stars in this configuration from this direction, right? And, like, it indicates this one planet, right? This M-class planet, as Star Trek would put it. Uh, and, and then there's also this thing where David spends, that Android spends two years studying all human languages so that he has sort of a universal decoder. I actually took a class in this in college about we learned about how the CIA tried to do this in, like, the mid-20th century, tried to figure out if there was like a true underlying structure to all language so you could make a, uh, a a decoder that worked for all languages this is also why the u.s government used the navajo language right in uh, in code making and like the wind talkers movie is because like it was so different from the other languages um that it was that it was difficult to to parse it or decode it when it was given in code and and stuff like that. Okay, and also because they didn't have the other country didn't have Navajos that they could use to decode it. Okay, so that's one idea, right? Is that like you see all the glyphs, you figure out there's a unified meaning. Also, you meet the aliens that made you. You figure there must be aliens that made them. You're looking, you're searching for this ultimate thing. So what, what Derrida would put in opposition to that is the the trailer to Empire, uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, right? right. <laughs> so in, in the trailer to Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, you hear Abraham Lincoln read the Getty. Address and the phrase a government or nation like of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth, right? So this illustrates Derrida's concept of difference, right? Which is the French word difference, which is supposed to be said. This, the idea with this word is you're supposed to say it the same way as the word difference, but it means something different than that, uh, than the word difference. <laughs> that, is and in say, itself, that is to say the spelling, that is to say the, the common pronunciation masks the difference in the spelling. And that's important yeah. for what the, con- you know what I mean, for what the yeah. concept means. That they seem the same, but they're in fact uh, different. Exactly. And so the idea is that we approach symbols, signifiers, structures of meaning, all these things in relation to how they are different from other structures of meaning, not in relation to what they signify. So the classic example is like a house is different from a shed, is different from a mansion. Part of the qualities of it being a house are that it is different from these other things. You can't define, you can't, if you define a house just in terms of like the physical structure that you're trying to communicate, um, you're not actually doing what a person does when they say the word house, which is like communicate all these ideas of difference. So in the Gettysburg Address, it says, of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth, which implies that humanity is under siege by vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and in this context, uh, the Civil War, to some degree, exists uh, because vampires are trying to take over all or part of America. And you're trying to defeat the vampires. And Nick, yes. But wait, 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 wait. I thought that they were trying to secede. <laughs> There's a line that says, about like vampires should have their own country, too. We haven't seen this movie yet, so we don't know for certain what happens. I haven't read a summary of the book. Um, But the main point is that, like, the main point to take away from it is that these are the same words, right? But they mean something totally different, and that's because of difference, right? It's because of the relationship that it has to other things that it is similar to but different from, right? right? And so, like, we are hearing this Gettysburg Address. We are thinking of— You might might call it context, but it's actually when you really piece apart what context means, it it gets a little more complicated than just that. Difference is much like a micro-level thing than what we're talking about, which is on a higher level. But I think think it's a cool word to bring up and a cool concept. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, but it's like because it's the same as the Gettysburg Address, it draws into— 
focus the things about it that are different. And so right? your 50-second – sure. And your, the, the other meaning of, of difference, the other thing that's sort of um, kind of yoked into this, this term that Derrida comes up with is the idea of deferring. Not, differ, not just differing, but also deferring. So that you, you, um, you think you can know what a, a, a word means, but in fact, the, the meaning of the word is deferred until you know more the meanings of other words, which themselves, their meanings are deferred until you know. And this is what Pete is saying about Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, vampire hunter that is to say the meaning of you know government of the of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth is in fact deferred until you know more about other words or other signifiers happening you know uh around it that is to say yeah. meaning happens in a network uh it's deferred onto words that it differs from and this is what derrida calls difference yeah so we don't know, for example, whether the glyph that they found in Samaria is, hey, it's the space jockeys, right? It's the aliens from Alien, right, that, that gave rise to the xenomorph, or whether it's the aliens from Alien Vampire Hunter, right? Like, it's like, we, like for all we know, that glyph could be like a parody, or it could be like, you know, a, it could be anything, because in order to know what it means, we have to know, or, or how it's being used even, we have to know what it's being used kind of in relation to. Right. Right? You, you can't just take glyphs from like six different languages, look at them, say they're the same, and just make the leap that they all mean the same thing. Right? That's just not, I mean, and this is according to Derrida, there are other things theories, right? Like Chomsky's generative grammar might say that there's some sort of, you know, in, in our DNA or in our, in our, the way that we're developed, right? As, as biological organisms, there might be some sort of indication that we're, we form this structure, you know, in, in the way that we make signifiers, right? Like that that's why everybody seems to be similar, right? Um, I mean, I tend to fall more on the Derrida side of it uh, and less on the Chomsky side of it. Um, but I think, I think there's a lot of – there's like ideas of cultural imperialism in it and stuff like that. And I'm not a linguist. I just took a couple classes and read a little bit of books and stuff and sauna. It's not a huge deal. But the, the reason it's relevant to the movie is that they're in this search for this thing that's giving meaning to all these other things. Um, in accordance with this idea of meaning and symbol, they're not going to find it. They're not going to find something that provides them with a satisfying answer because they're misunderstanding what signs mean and what it means to create or signify thing, right? Um, I mean, this also brings us to... I mean, I wanted to mention this. I know we're getting up on the hour, but I wanted to mention this thanks to Snitty on Twitter for pointing out that the plot of Prometheus is very similar to the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Chase, mm. right? Where, in fact, uh, the information from the alien progenitor that has given rise to all of the sentient humanoid races uh, in, in both Federation and extra Federation space is put in the, uh, in the DNA of the uh, biological organisms, not in a signifier that they could interpret culturally, which makes it, make, uh, makes it a bit more robust. Right, this idea that there's like this physical self-replicating chemical object or pattern that is in all of these different races, and then by tracing its path and looking at its kind of like epidemiology, right, you can then like try to identify where it comes from, like spatially, uh, right, or whatever. Like you can try to figure out where it comes from, and, and that that to me is like a more robust way of transmitting it. It still has its problems, but I mean that's the same. It's a similar plot except for all of the horrible psychosexual violence, <laughs> where it's like an old guy comes to Picard and. Says, says, you know, it says, archaeology professor, take a sabbatical from Starfleet, come with me, I've made the find of a lifetime, it'll change the way everything works forever, um, and, it, and, and then, you know, he dies, because he, Picard says, unfortunately, I have a lot of more episodes of this show that I have to make, so I can't go with you, uh, and, and he dies, and then all of these different civilizations all kind of race to find, they all find out about this information, Picard kind of shares it with all of them once they all kind of show up in the same spot, and they meet the space jockey, like they meet the progenitor, um, who kind of explains to them that, that they were well, they lonely. Mean, I mean, they meet an yeah. image of the progenitor, which actually yeah, makes yeah, the yeah. whole chain of, of signification kind of uh, a lot more complex. It turns out that the, yeah. um, that the you know, code encoded in our genetic, uh, encoded partially in every species' genetic uh, code and, you know, uh, distributed on a, a, uh, a a uh, number of planets in a spiral stretching throughout uh, the Milky Way galaxy, um, you know, will reconfigure a tricorder to project a uh, uh, to project an image of uh, President of the in- of inside the a- of the Actor Studio West, Salome Jens, who will uh, <laughs> who will use Lee Strasberg's method to tell us that uh, you know that um, you are a monument. Uh, not to our greatness, but to our existence. 
uh, which is her message to the, to the assembled uh, Romulans, Klingons, Cardassians, uh, and humans uh, who, who witness this message. Yeah, and it's interesting because then what comes out of it is that nice little confrontation between Picard and the Romulan where it's like perhaps someday down, you know, someday in the future we'll all be able to get along. Well, it's actually, like, they don't, it, it doesn't. I mean, and yeah. in, in fact, this is an example of difference because what that you are relating that to uh, to a series of words that you're actually not given in the episode. Uh, right. So uh, what happens is the Romulan and I'm, I'm sorry, Pete, I don't mean to stomp you. Oh, no, well. no. Jump on. And, no, and well, actually, it. you it's just that I've you, you've seen this more recently than I. I've recently been engaged in a in a year long Netflixing of all seven series of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, so I've you know just seen it. Um, uh, The Romulan communicates with Picard, and he says, "Perhaps someday," and he trails off because he can't actually finish the sentence that that he's begun. It's just perhaps someday, and this you know uh, this dash, this long dash of infinite possibility is uh, is left hanging in the air, and you know Patrick Stewart, uh, you know nods his his chrome dome and you know square jaws him and says yes someday, and uh, you know it's this this whole uh, chain of signification and communication uh, has been there even though the words are are actually absent because uh, the meaning of the word is actually deferred onto a, lo- uh, a lot of other words that even though they're not there are sort of necessary for the meaning of the the first word. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's where Prometheus ends up much more strongly, right? Which is like, we don't have an ultimately satisfying answer. They want to go search more. There is that one where she's like, they decided, they made us, and then they decided to destroy us. Why did they change their minds? And the robot says, uh, I, do, doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no reason why it should matter. And then she's like, well, it matters to me because I'm a human, human and you're a robot. And that's why it matters to me, right? Which I think to me kind of... It, it cheats on that, right? Because it's like yeah, no, that's, in that that's, un- yeah. that's punting. I mean, that's that's true yeah. Scotsmaning, right? Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, no, this is intrinsic to humanity, right? Like that humanity wants to know this thing. Humanity has this experience, but no, I mean, like, yeah, by saying I'm a human and you're a robot, it's like we're totally different. We're not. They're not totally different, right? Like he's made in their image. He's like a a succession of them, right? Like I mean, they make it like him to make him more comfortable to talk to, right, I guess, uh, as a consumer product or as a government official or whatever. Um, but yeah, but it is true. It is, it is punting. It is not insufficiently robust confrontation of what the challenges that they're facing. And, and I think that there is some wishful thinking in there. Like, I think there is sort of like this, we'll go on this quest and we'll find the truth. I mean, I wrote a college essay that pretty much said that when I was like applying to colleges and like, it's an admirable quality to have. Um, but I do think that there are issues when you're talking about like semantics and semiotics and like meaning and also like the creation of meaning and the creation of people and the creation of ideas of people and the ideas of creation of people and all these other ideas and creationings and peoplings and all these other things. You can't just sort of say, we'll keep looking and treat that like it's an answer. Right, like, but, but you can if you're making a movie and you're trying to set up a sequel. That's true. That's true. I wonder what they find. Do you think they get to go and like, like it's like Elf? They're like on the alien planet. The this is like to the aliens. It's like Elf, where it's like, oh, it's so silly. Look at it. Try to drink that fluid. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so naive and human. Doesn't it know that it could just eat a hydro bar? You know, like. <laughs> Um, and it's like a. I, I, yeah. Let me. I think we're getting close to the, the show. Let me just try to wrap up one other thing here. Um, as I was trying to follow uh, your very you know high level discourse about Derrida and whatnot uh, yeah. before. Um, so you're talking about how the characters in the movie are on the search for meaning and signification, and they don't really find it. Right? They're disappointed by it, and at the end, uh, the, David the robot is basically like, "Doesn't matter." And then Shaw's like, "Yes, it does." Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I was just struck by the parallels to the audience there, you know, who are watching this movie <laughs> and are looking for a signification and looking for all this to sort of come together, <laughs> and it doesn't. And at that point, what? Uh, you know, we, we were supposed to identify with, uh, with, with Shaw and, and be like, well, you know, yes, things should, and therefore we will come along for the ride, literally come along for the ride with the sequel. Yeah. No, we there? don't identify with Shaw. We're like the woman in the house is like, don't you want to hear what he says? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we don't care. I mean, you know why we don't care? Because the horrible psychosexual violence, <laughs> you know, like it's just and I think I think that uh, 
I mean, that's, 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 there's an issue of difference there, right? It's like, if this thing were put in the context of a Star Trek The Next Generation episode, where, like, we could be reasonably optimistic about the outcome, right? Like, then perhaps we would be more interested. But in fact, this very same question posed in the context of horrible tentacle rape, we are not as interested <laughs> about what happens, you know? Like, and I don't think that that speaks to, I mean, and that I think speaks to the, what the question is by itself, which is not independent from its context. Right. Right. Like the, the question of existence, the question of creation is not independent of the context in which you are asking it. Um, that I think that is the big takeaway from our like breakdown and analysis of Prometheus. And Prometheus is kind of like a hopeful uh, lunge or grasping or aspiration towards it like having some sort of independence of con- from context. Um, or at least positioning it within a very specific context so strongly that like and asking us to sort of take that context as our context and like follow through from there, ignoring the other context in which this question might be asked. Mm-hmm. And also when the yeah, when the guy <laughs> when did I did I, I didn't tell this already, right? I said it in the pre-show. When the when the when the sort of hipster guy with the hipster glasses <laughs> gets the gets the alien tentacle penetrated down his throat and gets like alien impregnated. Uh, or whatnot, and killed. I turned to the guy sitting next to me, and I said, uh, "You're not going to see that in Battleship." <laughs> <laughs> context, right. context. Um, so, uh, I think that's it for this uh, episode of the Overthinking. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us to another planet if you want to, and the journey will continue towards other prequels and postquels. There, there. Oh, yeah, I'm man. sorry. We've, we've. Um, uh, yeah, spoiler alert, there is no answer to the Overthinking It podcast. <laughs> there is only, it's, you know... It's, it's podcasts all the way down, people. That's how it works. <laughs> there's, only, uh, there's only the continuation of podcasting. But if you would like to join the conversation, uh, you can do so by uh, emailing podcast at overthinkingit.com, by... Um, uh, calling 203-285-6401. You can actually call or text 203-285-6401 uh, or join the conversation on the show notes on the uh, on the site at Overthinking It. Um, hey, we uh, we had a um, uh, great jump in the in the rankings with our new Overthinking It podcast logo. Uh, thanks to Mark Lee, who is the impresario and design uh, designer behind that. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Um, so, uh, we, I guess we'd been hit. Our, our logo was too low resolution. And at a certain point, Apple just removes you from the iTunes store, from visibility in the iTunes store. And when we uploaded our new high res logo, uh, and you know, it was in need of a, uh, it was in need of an upgrade. Um, we sort of jumped into the top 50. So we're in the top 50, uh, film and TV podcasts on, uh, iTunes. That's, Yay. Re- yeah, it's really wonderful. Or at least we, we have broken the top 50, even if we're not there consistently. Uh, what would help is if you went and left a review of the show or just a rating, um, on the, uh, the page in iTunes for the show. And if you haven't done that, we'd, uh, really appreciate it if you did it. It helps surface us in their rankings. And I think, uh, it's probably the best thing you can do to help new people, uh, discover the show. Or you could email your friends or something and, you know, send them a link. Uh, Feel free to do that, too. We would welcome it. Uh, So we'll see you in the uh, comments on the show notes. And uh, until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it it probably probably doesn't deserve. Never send Stringer Bell to do Brother Muzone's job. So can I give you my Prometheus plot summary? <laughs> please. Uh, please, yes. Okay. Uh, okay, so uh, so me and my brother, he's kind of a jerk, but like whatever. We play this really cool MMORPG called World of Alien. And like we have these level 50 characters and we're on these really advanced quests. You guys should totally join. I mean you'll start at level one, but like you could totally just hang. Right, like you just totally come on and like and like do the quest with us, like do the mission with us, right? It'll just be fine. And then the entire rest of the movie, to me, feels like you're in a role playing video game. You've stumbled into like a dungeon that's like twenty levels above you, <laughs> and like you're basically either hoping that your team's going to be wiped, <laughs> or like desperately using every healing potion that you have as you like have random encounter after random encounter and just like run.
run, run. You know, like I can't fight. There's nothing I can do. Got to keep running. And it's just like you, the like horrible, resentful feeling of relief that you get when you finally see that door and you get to get out of the mission. Like that's what it felt like. It felt like stumbling into like, you know, the like uh, the wind temple of Final Fantasy one or whatever when you're like level five and just like, oh, they're going to get killed. 